Hi there, it's Mark here. Um, this is just a wee insert at the start of this podcast, just to basically keep you guys up to date and say that yes, as you might have guessed from the from the from the opening uh, promo you got, we are now part of the Recorded History Podcast Network, which is something we're really excited about. We've joined up with the hopes that it's really going to grow and reach a wider audience. Um, and also just to let you know, you know, there might be some adverts that begin appearing on the podcast. Um, and just to say that if we are successful enough and, and we were able to make some money out of the, the podcast, we are going to be looking at ways of giving some of that back to the, the PhD and early community, early career community that has been so good to made this podcast possible for us with all the wonderful interviews we've been able to do. Also, I mentioned in the, the past couple of podcasts that we were looking to do a new kind of more relaxed version of the podcast, more of a chatty type of effort. Well, what we've decided to do is to put that on hold until the summer as we see how this venture with with the Recorded History Podcast Network goes. Um, so stay tuned for further details on that. If you're tuning in for the first time, uh, thanks for joining us. and We hope you enjoy this podcast on Native Americans and slavery. And here is my co-host Malcolm with our usual opening vignette. One of the most telling testimonies against the pretended kindness of slaveholders is the fact that uncounted numbers of fugitives are now inhabiting the dismal swamp, preferring the untamed wilderness to their cultivated homes, choosing rather to encounter hunger and thirst and to roam with the wild beasts of the forests, running the hazard of being hunted and shot down than to submit to the authority of kind masters. I tell you, my friends, humanity is never driven to such an unnatural course of life without great wrong. The slave finds more of the milk of human kindness in the bosom of the savage Indian than in the heart of his Christian master. He leaves the man of the Bible and takes refuge with the man of the tomahawk. He rushes from the praying slaveholder into the paws of the bear. He quits the homes of men for the haunts of wolves. He prefers to encounter a life of trial, however bitter, or death, however terrible, to dragging out his existence under the dominion of these kind masters. So said the great abolitionist Frederick Douglass. But Douglass's words reflect a persistent conflict in the idea of Native American slaveholding, that it was a form of benevolent slaveholding, far removed from that which was practised on the white plantations of antebellum America. As we'll find out today, the reality was much more complicated. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of American History 2. My name is Mark McClay and I'm joined, as always, by Malcolm Craig. Hello Malcolm. Hello Mark. Yeah, delighted to be back. And this week uh, we're going to be talking about Native Americans and slavery with our guest Ed Mayer. So welcome Ed, thanks for coming on. And could you just you know, tell us for a minute a little bit about yourself and your research? Hi guys, uh, thanks for having me on. So... My research is concerned with Native American slaveholding. I'm in the third year of a PhD at the University of Hull studying this, um, and I'm specifically looking at the Seminole tribe in Florida and how their slaveholding developed over the late 18th and early 19th century and how this impacted on their relationship with the Africans among them. Cool. So, and I, as as I've already said on Twitter this morning, this is a subject I know nothing, not really anything about. I don't think Malcolm knows particularly more about it. So you could probably spend the episode lying to us, and we wouldn't know that much. But still, um, 
And I, I think, just to start with, um, I think most people who are listening to this episode, who aren't experts in American history in particular, would not associate Native Americans with either owning slaves or being enslaved themselves. So before we begin the discussion, could you kind of give us a sense of the sort of numbers or rough percentage of Native Americans who were either slaves or owned slaves during the 18th and 19th centuries? Well, there's um, a few figures out there that I think um, is worth bringing into discussion. So Alan Gillet, in his study, The Indian Slave Trade, has uh, pointed out that between 1670 and 1715, um, there were more Indians exported as slaves from Charlestown than Africans. So that already uh, indicates how prevalent this practice was. On a wider scale, uh, Brett Rushforth has um, stipulated that there were about two to four millions, million Native Americans enslaved between the whole of uh, the history of North America and chattel slavery. Um, Andreas Rosandez recently has upped that number to two to five million. So when you compare this to the 10 to 12 million of Africans that have been uh, accounted for in the slave trade, it's definitely less, but it's still a significant portion of this. So it just demonstrates how important this area is to American history and slavery's history. Now, um, Native Americans owning slaves, I have the figures for the Cherokee, and before the Civil War, there were about 17,000 Cherokee and 4,000 slaves among them, 4,000 African slaves. So that, again, shows how prevalent um, slavery was becoming in Native American societies, particularly by the end of slavery's run in the 19th century. So... We discussed back in our very first, dimming distant days of our very, very first podcast, we discussed kind of slavery in, in colonial America. And, you know, th- there was a time when slavery was not intrinsically linked to race in the way that it becomes. You know, not until the 18th century that were slave and African are, are really linked to, together in the, in the way that we know. So am I right in thinking that, that Native Americans are involved in slavery from, you know, the days of you know, Columbus and the first, you know, colonization of, of North America? Well, um, even centuries prior to Columbus landing in America, in the Americas, we have evidence of um, slavery among the tribe through archaeological evidence. Um, for instance, we know that from the 10th century, this is when corn became a staple crop in North America. And from this point on, those who controlled the distribution of the corn became the uh, top members of these societies and therefore had the power to subjugate others. Um, so this create this was an, a way in which we can see that the societal inequality and the conditions for slavery were already in place. And indeed, after Columbus landed, um, the immediate accounts we have of North America from the 16th century, they detail how Native Americans already had a robust system in place of demarking themselves from outsiders and indeed seeing themselves as better than outsiders. For instance, um, in Florida in the 1590s, one uh, white trader is taken as a captive and he's not taken as a captive due to his race, but due to his haircuts. And this just shows the different ways that uh, Native Americans would differentiate themselves through haircut, through dress, even through the shape of um, a person's skull. Some tribes would uh, practice skull shaping by um, changing the shape of a baby's skull from birth so a tribe was given a distinct look. 
So we can see that from the earliest days that Native Americans um, already had ideas of demarking themselves from outsiders and justifying enslaving others. So thinking about as well the, the, the Native Americans who would become enslaved themselves, uh, were there any stereotypes about Native American slaves in particular, you know, the sort of how Africans came to be viewed mm. as, you know, sort of hard field workers and everything. I, I mean, was there, did Native Americans acquire a certain niche as they were seen as a particularly good slave for, for anything or, you know, just was there any sort of stereotypes yeah. around? Well, I think it's important to understand first that when we look at slavery um, in the early colonies in the early 17th century, of just how there was a distinct labor shortage before African, the African slave trade really took off. Um, we know of, say, uh, whites being taken as indentured servitude, uh, into indentured servitude. And it was the same for Native Americans. It was seen as a necessity. And Native American males who came to be enslaved were usually taken through conflict. And these were notoriously bad slaves to have because they were very independent warriors. They were young males. They often knew the areas that they were in, so could easily escape um, under the cover of night. And also, as is the case with um, whites and slavery in the New World, there was that constant paranoia that they were going to lead an insurrection. And it really was quite tangible with Native American warriors. Um, it got so bad that in Barbados... Um, in 1676, they banned the importation of uh, Native Americans as slaves because they feared so much what they might um, what they might unravel in those colonies. But um, there's another side to this um, that has recently come out um, in Andreas Rosande's work that um, women and children were very popular. Um, Native American women and children were very popular as slaves. Children, because they were more imp impressionable and therefore it was seen that they could in time identify with their captors. And women, it is um, the case that they were domestic servants and indeed sexual servants as well. I mean, Columbus even sent back um, Native American women to some of his patrons as a form of gifts. Um, so we see how far this kind of stems back and... No, just as just as a follow up, I was just wondering, given the you know the the high death rate of of Native Americans, you know, as soon as the Europeans landed, you know, mo mostly from disease, but also through, also through warfare, um, did were Native Americans did Native American slaves also have that you know that sort of idea attached to them that they're not going to they're not going to live long and be able to be able to be slaves so long because, well, Native Americans did die in substantial numbers as soon as they made contact with Europeans. Yes, that was definitely um, a case of them. Um, from the white perspective, they made poor slaves because their, their, their lifespan wasn't particularly long, especially in the earlier period. But I do think especially when you're talking about warriors as slaves, Native American warriors, it was more this fear of what they may do, which is more in play of why they didn't make great slaves, in, as weird as it is to say that, in the 17th century. It was a necessity that needed to be filled, a, a labour necessity, so many took that risk. Could I just ask a follow-up question as well? You might not have an answer to this. In this kind of period, 17th century, early 18th century, do Native Americans 
also enter into indentured servitude contracts at all? Does that does that happen as well alongside slavery at all? Um, I could I can't say for sure, but I could see it happening as um, trade networks are obviously set up between Native Americans and white settlers from the earliest of days. And so to repay debts, it is very likely that many would have been taken into indentured servitude. But the na- in this earlier period, it's unlikely that these Native Americans would have taken it so seriously and they would have just just absconded, like, uh, almost immediately. Right, great, so th- That's what I imagine. Great, thanks. Sorry, that was just, you know, something that was kind of in my head there. And thinking yeah, more about kind of how Native Americans' involvement in in themselves enslaving others and becoming slave owners. Does this begin to happen from the earliest days of colonial North America? Or does it take time to Um, develop? Well, from the earliest days, I mean, even before Columbus, uh, as I've mentioned, um, they already had ideas of taking captives and captives would be gifted to other chiefs, maybe as a form of gift. But it is definitely when Europeans arrive in the 17th, um, especially in the 17th century, that we get this idea of uh, Native American tribes consciously involving themselves in a in the slave trade with Europeans. Um, this is particularly true for the bigger tribes, such as the Chickasaw and the Iroquois. They adapted to this new climate when they realized that these powers, these European powers, were here to stay. And the goods that they brought became essential for these tribes to keep their dominance, particularly rifles. They um, coveted rifles as a means of um, securing their own dominance over the tribes that they had in their dominion. And so these tribes, such as the Iroquois and Chickasaw, would take captives from smaller tribes, then sell them on to the, um, the whites and therefore get in return these European goods, and they would use these European goods to, again, capture people from the smaller tribes, sell them to whites. So there was a sort of uh, quite a sophisticated system that the Iroquois and uh, the Chickasaws particularly had in the late uh, 17th century. Cool, and I, I mean, to sort of build upon that, in, in doing, doing a wee bit of preparation for mm. this podcast, I came across this sort of following quote, regarding how Native Americans enslaving others. And the, 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 the scholar argued that many Indians recognized that they had little choice but to become slavers. If they did not do the, do the Europeans' bidding, they could easily become victimized themselves. And I mean, in one sense, this seems to me like a real attempt to excuse Native Americans, uh, you know, especially right. since you've already said that there was already slavery before the Europeans uh, arrived, you know, that there was mm. already sense for that. But is there any real substance to that claim that Native American slavery is driven by the Europeans' presence? Um, well, I think definitely getting involved in this more sophisticated Indian slave trade that was due to the European presence in North America. But I think that quote more applies to what was going on in the 19th century. In the 18th century and late 17th century, I think... Uh, especially tribes like the Chickasaw, the Iroquois Confederacy, uh, the Iroquois Federation and um, the Cherokee, they quite willingly got involved with this because this was a means for them to get more European goods and then assert their own dominance. So in the short term, in the early 18th century, these tribes did very well out of this Indian slave trade that was going on. And again, I think it um, 
a quote like that can oversimplify Native American communities and their own agency. Um, every tribe is different. We can't just see them all as one broad Native America. In the Indian slave trade, there were definite winners and there were definite losers. I think that's how we should view it in this earlier period. That's fascinating because I was talking in a lecture today about Native America after 1865 and, and, right. and trying to make that point to students about this is yeah. not Native America isn't one thing. It's this capacious vessel yeah. with all these different nations and tribes and societies and cultures in it. I think that's yeah, a definitely. that's a really crucially important point. So if we turn to kind of this transition to racial ideas about slavery, because you know, as the seventeenth century progresses and into the eighteenth century, we see the decline in indentured servitude for a, a whole variety of reasons. Mm. And you know, slavery and, and race and racism become even more interlinked as we get further into this period. How does this this process of the racialization of slavery, if you want to say, uh, affect Native Americans? Were they perhaps less likely to be enslaved as slaveholders you know, looked towards you know, African slaves? Mm. Or are they still as likely to be enslaved? Or what, I mean, how does this all affect the attitudes towards Native Americans and slavery? Well, definitely um, this, when the... Uh, the transatlantic slave trade really cemented in North America, the uh, demand for Native Americans as slaves dropped significantly. But um, tribes like the Iroquois and the Chickasaw that I've mentioned, the bigger tribes, they still managed to adapt to this new climate. They managed to uh, change their focus. Uh, one way that they did this was they, um, they could be used or they would offer their services as slave catchers to the whites. So many Africans would obviously abscond from their plantations and the first place that they would go would be the wilderness to find cover there. These lands were usually the lands that Native Americans would have and therefore if they found them, they could bring them back. Um, so this became a very valuable service that Native Americans could offer. And in the 18th century, you see this come up a lot in the treaties that they will offer their services as slave catchers or whites demand that they be slave catchers for them just so that the Native American tribes may be able to get a better deal out of this. But on the other side of it as well, um, you see that uh, Native Americans did incorporate some Africans into their own communities because these Africans knew about planting, which is something that Native Americans would not know much about because most were hunter-gatherer societies. Um, so they would take them some in, but I would argue that among most tribes, this was not a rule. This was more of an exception because especially when uh, the European powers are still in play, if you have, if, as a Native American tribe, if you have among you some runaway Africans and are trying to do treaty proceedings with the British, it's likely to sour the deal a bit if you're harboring their slaves. So it definitely changes the dynamic for Native Americans, but they adapt to it in the 18th century. And so are, are Native Americans in this period, are they more likely to be enslaving Africans themselves in parallel with, with what Europeans are doing? Well, in the 18th century, uh, around the mid-18th century, it was less so the case that Native Americans would be taking on Africans as slaves because, as I said, they were hunter-gatherer societies. They didn't really know um, what to do with slaves beyond the, having them as a symbol of their own prestige. That was always an, in, um, 
and always a desire that Native Americans had for having slaves. It gave them prestige. But beyond that, they didn't really know what to do with them. So they wouldn't have slaves on the mass scale that they did in the 19th century as they did in the 18th century. They were more involved in helping, as I said, as slave catchers maintain the slave trade and slavery for whites. Cool. So, I mean... When I, when the o- one of the only things I ever knew about Native Americans and slavery before, before you know, approaching this podcast was about the Cherokees. And this mm. actually harks back to one of the, another one of the very first podcasts we did on Andrew Jackson, the Indian Removal Act. Yeah. And I always remember the work of, of Mary Young, um, who looked into the Cherokees, who, who were one of the tribes Jackson was wanting to force to the West. And, <clears throat> and she detailed how, as part of their attempts to sort of prove that they were civilizing, and I say that in air quotes, um, or at least adhering to American white society, uh, one of the parts of this process was that they attained slaves themselves. Um, and indeed, I think there was there was one slave owner that had somewhere upwards of about 40 slaves or something in, jo- in Joseph yeah. Van. I mean, is that an extreme example of the Cherokees, an outlier in what's going on here, or is that much the same, the pattern with the five big tribes um, of, of the East? Well, um, it's definitely the case with four of the five tribes in um, uh, four of the five native, uh, five civilized tribes, as they were called. So I think to understand this, you have to place it in its right context. In the late 18th century, Native American communities were decimated by the American Revolution. Um, just uh, as uh, their trade networks were destroyed overnight, many that had allied with the British lost out significantly. And even if they hadn't explicitly allied with the British, their connections would have just disappeared. And the attitude of the United States government was much different to the colonial government. The colonial government was very much in favor of treating Native Americans as sovereign states to deal with, to deal diplomacy with. That was the easiest way to understand it for them, as there were many spheres of influence. There was the French, there was the British, there was the Spanish, and then there was the Native American sphere um, and the different tribes within that. So it was much easier to deal with them as sovereign nations and let them continue as they wanted to continue. The United States, um, especially with the mentality of the founding fathers of uh, American exceptionalism, was much different. And they demanded that Native Americans step in line into their idea of civility or get out of the way, essentially. So Native Americans had to change rapidly um, over the course of just a few decades to be palatable to these whites. So... You mentioned the Cherokee there, and um, there was John Ross among the Cherokee who um, who became very uh, European in his manner as well. Among the Choctaw, you have Peter Perkins. Among the Creeks, you have Alexander McGilvery. All of these men, and men like them in their tribes, they uh, were usually half-white themselves, but they called for their tribes to adapt to white styles of um, civilization. So... Some of them would convert to Christianity. Um, some of them would start dressing like um, Europeans. And if you look at the, the pictures, are fascinating. If you look at John Ross, if you look at Peter Perkins, Alexander McGillery, they look exactly like you would expect um, a statesman to look, a senator to look at the time, a president to look at the time. And indeed, the final thing that they had to adopt was slavery. And this came 
at a convenient point for Native Americans because they were losing out on so much land that they could no longer thrive as hunter-gatherers, so they had to adapt to an agrarian lifestyle. They were, if anything, coerced into this agrarian lifestyle, and therefore adopting slaves was the way in which they could keep themselves afloat and win favor with whites as well as being able to uh, agree that blacks were to be subjugated and it also put many at ease that there was not some alliance that was going to start between Native Americans and Blacks. So, yes, in this period of the 19th century, there is this rapid turnaround, this adoption of racial policy. Of, they even incorporate race into their own understandings of their own foundation. There's um, a real sea change in Native American views of slavery in this period. That was that was really interesting as to where that all came from, and and obviously we know in the end it still didn't work. Um, this this you know they didn't civilize enough. Um, but um, essentially to to then to sort of round off this section where we're thinking about the, the this the element of race and and what's going on here, and thinking especially back to the the opening vignette that we started the podcast with, and and Frederick Douglass, the famous escaped slave, who we've discussed many times on this podcast, has portrayal of native americans as more benevolent slave masters i mean is there any truth to this claim that douglas makes or or is it simply a way of making white slaveholders whom douglas had justifiable enmity for you know don't, don't deprive him of that was it was a way to make them seem worse by comparison i think there is a, a significant part of this the the trope in historiography which stems from uh, abolitionist um, use of Native Americans is that Native Americans were benevolent slaveholders. And it's true, some were more uh, kindly masters than others, but I would argue it's because the pool was a lot smaller than, say, the white masters that we had to choose from. So when you saw a, a Native American master treating his slave kindly, that was noteworthy. That was something to point out. Whereas a, a, a native, a Cherokee that would mistreat his slave wouldn't be. I mean, we can see this in the WPA narratives. There are quite a few accounts from those that were enslaved by the Cherokee, by the Chickasaw and the Choctaw that account to the fact that they had an experience of slaveholding, which was very similar to that which we would expect under whites. But then some will attest to the kindliness of their masters. I think as with most things in history, you just, there's, it's a lot deeper than just thinking that uh all native americans were good slave owners that was a lot more complicated than that so that is some like absolutely fantastic background uh, to all of this in terms of the deep history of, of native america and and slavery so i'd like to turn now to your your own chosen research area and that of the the seminoles who you're actually conducting your your phd research in um I think, like me, probably a lot of listeners are not experts in the, the nuances of the different groupings and tribes within within Native America. So, I mean, who are the Seminoles? What makes them distinctive? And whereabouts in the United States are Seminoles found? Where are they located? Where do they live? Well, um, the Seminoles formed, and what is unique about the Seminoles in comparison to all the other tribes that we've been talking about, is that the Seminoles formed in the mid-18th century. They didn't have much of a prehistory beyond that. They were they started off as a loose confederation of creek tr creek towns that broke away, 
and other Native American communities that were decimated and fled to Florida, and this all amalgamated in the Seminoles around the French and Indian War. Indeed, the word Seminole itself means runaway in Spanish. It's a deviation of that. Um, so the Seminoles formed in Florida around this time, and they uh, were treated as part of the Creek Confederacy, but were very adamant that they were not a part of this. And they, unlike the other tribes, um, wanted to just be left alone. They kept this very uh, distinct idea that they just wanted to be left to their land in Florida, maybe do some trading with the Panton Leslie and Trading Company, but just be left to their own devices. And I think this is this sets a very interesting foundation for where they would go with slavery. And so how do the Seminoles involve themselves in slavery? You know, to what extent do they involve themselves? How do they do it? And is there anything that they do that is particularly unique to the Seminoles as a, as a tribe or, or grouping? Well, um, the Seminoles, as the other tribes were starting to practice or adopt ideas of chattel slavery, the Seminoles um, retained their indigenous notions of captive taking. So from the earliest accounts we have of the Seminoles in the 1770s, uh, the naturalist William Bartram travels uh, along Florida and he stays with a few, uh, stays among a few of the Seminole towns and he notices, um, he notices Yamasee captives among them. Um, being kept as captives as a mean of showing prestige among the tribe. Um, so the Seminoles managed to keep this idea of this ind indigenous notion of slavery alive, but it starts to change when Africans be among the tribe in the 1790s onwards. Um, as they were a tribe that was committed to their own self-preservation, they, they wholeheartedly incorporated Africans among them because the Africans could help in, as I've mentioned before, they knew uh, ideas of planting. They understood English better than the Seminoles would. So therefore, they could be used as intermediaries. So these Africans were incorporated among the tribe. Now, this is where my own argument comes into play that uh, for many, uh, the Seminole experiences the black seminal experience is treated as one that is uh, homogenous but i would argue that there was more to it than that that there was many different layers to it but the seminoles in this period they start practicing more of these uh, they retain their indigenous notions of captive taking and this feeds into their treatment of blacks okay well you hinted at it there and uh, mm. and this is your platform so tell us why? How uh, you, you say that the black experience was seen as homogenous? Mm. Um, I mean, first of all, what was what is the the sort of view of it being homogenous, and mm. how was it different? How how are you telling us that it's actually different? Right. Well, um, in historiography, and again going back to abolitionists, they were fascinated with these black Seminoles um, because they lived in their own towns. And they practiced their own cultures. They even celebrated Christmas. They uh, had others. They had traditions that could be traced back to West African cultures. And they were essentially an autonomous group um, that only had to pay a, a a sort of tax to the Seminole Indians, which was in the form of uh, agriculture. And they were close allies of the Africans, and they. Um, 
they came to prominence in the Seminole Wars, the first Seminole War, which was in the 1810s, and more so in the second Seminole War in the 1830s. Um, the black involvement in the second Seminole War was so great that it is now starting to be seen as the biggest ever fugitive slave revolt in the United States. Um, but I have started to uncover pieces that indicate that this was a much more complicated experience. These Africans that we, uh, that historians have talked about of having these great freedoms, these were Maroons. These were Maroon communities that had been in Florida even before the Seminoles had been in Florida. So once the, uh, again, this changing dynamic that came after the American Revolution, these Maroon communities started to come to coalesce with the, uh. Sorry, just to quickly check, what, um, what do you mean by Maroons? Ah, oh, right, yes. Probably should establish. Uh, Maroon is uh, a term used for runaway slave communities that formed. Um, so you get a lot of them in the uh, in Central America, in the Caribbean, and they start to develop in Florida as well. These independent maroon communities that are in hard to find places that avoid capture and are hostile to those to those whites that white communities that are around them. So these um sem- these maroon communities had been forming in Florida from about the 17th century because Spain had been very lenient to Africans running away to the- Florida because they thought that these Africans could act as a defense to their territory because um, Florida was a sparsely populated colony at that point. Um, so again, once the these maroon communities thrived by themselves, but after the American Revolution and the more... Encro- um, the fact that the United States started encroaching more on Florida, these Maroons um, started to coalesce with the Seminole Indians. And they both had um, a common cause to remain free, to remain in Florida, and to be just left alone. So they allied together. And so I term these as the Seminole Maroons. They still had their own distinct culture, but they, at this point, became a part of the Seminole tribes. What I have uh, forwarded as an argument is that there were Africans among the Seminoles that were treated in a form that is more closely associated with slavery. They were kept in the Seminole Indian towns. They had restrictive freedoms and they more resemble what we would determine as a slave. And I'll give you one example of this. Um, One of the most popular accounts uh, that people turn to on the Seminoles is uh, from the adventurer William Simmons, who goes in the 1820s after Florida's been admitted as a territory. And he uh, note, he stays with the Seminole Maroons and he notes their great freedom, their great independence. And he goes on this really boring two-page rant about how this is some very great uh, example of philosophy and the Enlightenment ideals. And he is so taken by these Maroon communities that he stays with among the Seminoles. But then later um, on in his account, he is met by two slaves that belong to a Seminole chief called King Hijo, who he comments, who he dismisses as shy and ignorant savages, much like those that we would have in our southern plantations. And to me, that is very striking. If he is at one moment very, uh, is taken aback by how um, independent these uh, Seminole Maroons are, but yet he meets two others that are treated as slaves that he recognizes more closely as people that would be enslaved 
it's so it shows that there would be a dual experience among the Seminoles here. So how did the, the, the Seminoles perceive the Africans among them? Do they have a I mean do they have a racial paradigm or a racial lens mm. uh, through which they look at, at Africans in their in their communities and in their society? Well, um, once Africans came to be more prevalent in Native American and Seminole society from the 1790s, um, you start to see this adoption of a racial rhetoric. You start to see less accounts of um, Native American, like Yamasee captives. You see less of those sorts of accounts and you see the rise of Africans as slaves. And also what's interesting is um, the origin myths that are recorded in this period that the Seminoles profess to have. So from the early 1800s, we have a origin myth of the great spirit trying to create man who puts man in the oven and leaves him in too long in the first case and creates um, an African. And with this, he is disgusted and says, this is awful. We can't have this. So he tries again, but he leaves it in for not long enough. And it is a white man, and he pities the white man, so he will allow the white man to stay. But then he leaves it in the oven for just the right amount of time, and you have the birth of the American Indian. So in that case, you see that uh, the, the Seminoles had this very distinct understanding of a racial hierarchy from the early 1800s. There's another story where um, four Seminoles and one African are attempting to go to heaven to talk to the Great Spirit, and within the first line, the African has already fallen and broken his neck and can't visit the great spirit. It just think, uh, m issues like that in these origin myths demonstrate how the Seminoles were making a clear distinction between themselves and these Africans who were becoming more among the tribe. Furthermore, um, we have, we can also look at the way that, uh, the Seminoles talked and one interesting Thing is that they use Africans in a rather disparaging manner as a shorthand for weak. So during one particularly rough season, um, one Seminole Indian named uh, one Seminole Indian was uh, plowing his fields, and the other Indians were horrified at this, as they thought they were subjugated to the position of Africans. Um, why should we, the noble Seminoles, be doing the work of Africans? So you start to see that they are understanding their society in, in a, a definitely a racial way from the early 1800s onwards. That yeah, I I knew absolutely none of that. That was really interesting, and uh, I, I'm just shocked. To, I I don't know if shock's the right word, but it's really interesting that they are thinking about race in such similar ways as 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 whites would be going mm. on to th I mean just when you're talking about the racial hierarchy there and just yeah. you know it just just sounds like you know eugenics <laughs> the type of thing yeah. it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's incredible um i mean it just I, I feel like we should finish off the story of the seminoles i don't i don't mm. want to leave the listeners hanging before we ask you maybe a couple of concluding questions i mean what i, I know they obviously they suffer quite a lot of losses in two ways at the hands of andrew jackson don't they cuz he's yeah. quite instrumental in going down there and Sort of taking Florida when it is mm. sort of unclear as to whether he was supposed to or not, um, and then obviously the Indian Removal Act affects the Seminoles as well. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk about how how their story goes on, um, even even out with the slavery question. Well, yes, uh, they have a quite a, a 
Andrew Jackson has quite a big impact, obviously, on the Seminoles. As in the first, he instigates the first Seminole War by coming down to Florida, and then once again instigates the second Seminole War as president. So they, the second Seminole War takes place from 1835 to 1842, and it's the most costly of all the Indian wars that the United States fights. It's um, a real mess of a conflict. Um, the United States, which is still a young country at this point, doesn't really have a proper military infrastructure in place. And it's, I think that the Second Seminole War and the Mexican-American War should be treated in tandem in many ways because they are so fundamental for the development of the United States military as a force. But while the Mexican-American War was through successes, the Second Seminole War was through abject failures and more failures. Um, but after... Eventually, the uh, the last Native Amer- uh, the last Seminoles are rooted and they are removed to um, they are removed to Oklahoma. Most some end up in Texas. Some manage to hold on in Florida and fight the Third Seminole War in the 1850s. Though this is a much more of a small scale conflict. Uh, once the Civil War comes about, um, Native these. Uh, the Seminoles are torn between supporting the Union and supporting the Confederacy. Again, in the Seminole manner, it is more opportunistic. It is more what will help their own self-preservation. But this splinters the tribe further. Um, it seems, uh, while my um, my own research is concerned with the pre-Second Seminole War period, so I'm not really an expert, I think um, it the relationship between Africans and Seminoles, and the Africans indeed do go to Oklahoma with them, it becomes a lot more um, in line with slavery we'd expect from other tribes at this point, because now they are in the public eye. They are uh, Now the United States has these tabs on them that they have to start treating Africans in a manner that is more in line with what the United States would see as palatable. And... As we get towards the kind of the era of you know increasing anti-slavery, particularly in the north, and the move to what eventually moved towards civil war, how how does that interact with Native American slavery to the extent that it still exists in the the eighteen forties mm. and the eighteen fifties? Do do abolitionists you know pay any attention to it? Do they make any comment on any lingering traces of of slavery in Native American societies? Uh, and how does it, how does it all find, does it die out at the same time, uh, as, hmm. as we see slavery being kind of like, you know, eradicated in the South by the Civil War? Well, um, with the emancipation, the emancipation proclamation, that is slavery's end in Native American communities. Um, but abolitionists were more concerned, as you both probably know abolitionists were very savvy on the evidence that they used to present their case. And Native Americans were meant to be this idea of benevolent. They were benevolent slaveholders. They barely did slavery. They had this harmonious alliance with Africans, particularly the Seminoles. And this is how we should be. We should be treating our brothers like this. Um, but slavery, uh, it definitely comes to the fore with the Civil War, obviously. Um, as I've already mentioned with the Seminoles, uh, loyalties become split. The more slaveholding towns, especially among the uh, Cherokee side with the Confederacy, while others become more tied to the Union because they um, bank on a Union victory and they don't want to void their treaties with the United States. 
But the Cherokee, um, they're quite formidable in many um, divisions of the Cherokee are quite formidable in their support of the Confederacy. Indeed, the last um, Confederate general to surrender was a Cherokee, which shows just how committed many were to this cause and their own idea of holding on to their slaves. So to, so to sort of sum up here, I mean, I'm guessing what I've kind of got from everything you've said is that it seems to be that you're certainly arguing that, you know, beyond the details, we just need to have a more nuanced understanding of the Seminoles, but Native, Native Americans in general, rather than lumping them in to this one sort of almost dull narrative of just, you know, submissive decline in America. Is, is that fair to say? Yes, that that's definitely it. Um, I think study the study I'm trying to make and other studies that have come out recently are trying to remove Native Americans from simply this victim narrative, that they were passive to what was going on, that they were simply another casualty of uh, white encroachment. Certainly, they were to a, a very large extent, but that doesn't mean that they did that they adapted to the situations that they were in. As I've mentioned, uh, they adapted to being a part of the Indian slave trade. They saw themselves as being um, slave catchers once Africans were brought in, and once the situation got more dire, they adopted uh, slaves wholeheartedly. So, it, the study I'm trying to do with the Seminoles again is not just seeing as not just seeing the Seminoles as having, oh, well, that was one harmonious relations between Indians and Africans. It was more granular than that. There was more to it than that. There was, there was definitely a, a more complicated uh, situation afoot among the Seminoles. And indeed, it was the case among all the tribes. Um, slavery as an issue, as we all know, is a highly divisive one among any society. And that doesn't mean that it wouldn't be the case among Native American societies. And I think that is the, the perfect spot to end our discussion on it. A great summing up of a, of a very complex, contentious issue that I think certainly, you know, for me as a, a non-expert on 18th and 19th century America and, and all these issues, that that certainly adds a great layer of nuance and a kind of differentiated understanding of what's happening with slavery and with Native America and all that kind of thing. Really, as we always say on this podcast, fascinating absolutely fascinating <laughs> thank you very much yeah and as we also often say that will be getting stolen and passed on on as our own knowledge in our own lectures. <laughs> yes i'm honored i'm honored but no thank you so much ed i much appreciated that was really really great well thank you for having me guys oh, great fun pleasure and uh, next time when we're back next month we'll be continuing the theme of Na the native american experience when we jump forward into the 20th century to discuss how the federal government dealt with native americans and i'm sure that will also add a layer of nuance to what we think about that topic um so thanks again ed thanks again malcolm and uh, cheerio goodbye Silver and for gold and they leave the 
giants are than the Everglades, where the backwater rolls and the sawgrass waves. The eagles fly and the otters play in the land of the Seminole. Oh, oh, Seminole wind, oh, like you're never gonna go again. Calling to you like a long lost friend, sign of who you are. Seven. Oh.